This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. G'day Equity Mates, Ren here, no Bryce, just recording a quick introduction to today's interview. It's with expert investor and founder of Strawman, Andrew Page. In this interview, Andrew pitches us on three stocks that he has on his watch list or in his portfolio. And we wanted to provide some context because one of the stocks has had a massive jump up since this interview. We recorded this interview on Monday, the 27th of April. And one of the stocks that Andrew spoke to us about was Pushpay Holdings, which since then has jumped up about 50%. So well done, Andrew. Hopefully that convinces you guys that he's an expert worth listening to you. But most of all, we hope you enjoy this interview. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this interview. (laughs) I know I always say that, but (laughs) I am excited for this one. This is a voice that we first heard when we started out listening to finance podcasts a number of years ago now. And now we finally got him on our own. Yes, expert on many levels, we could say. As you are, I'm also excited about this interview. It's another one in our expert investor series and one with a bit of a twist on it. We're going to deep dive into a few specific stocks, which I'm very much looking forward to. But without any further ado, we'll introduce Andrew Page to the podcast. Welcome, Andrew. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So Andrew has worked in financial markets now for over 20 years with experience as an equities analyst and market commentator, having worked at Comsec, but as Alex said, also The Motley Fool, which is where we heard his voice on on podcast, and also Team Invest, which if we have some time would be interesting to unpack as well. He's a passionate private investor and the founder and managing director of strawman.com, which we will also unpack. But 
as I just mentioned, private investor and very active on on Twitter. And we're very interested to understand Andrew's philosophy of investing and and particularly how uh, he goes about finding and then, I guess, investing in stocks. So, Andrew, looking forward to it. Really glad to be here, guys. And I've been listening to the podcast for a while. You guys do a great job. So, yeah, super excited to be here. So Andrew, before we before we get stuck into your background and your work at Strawman, and as Bryce said, some specific stock chat, we want to start with a bit of a game. We call it overrated or underrated, but perhaps it should be called overvalued or undervalued, <laughs> where we throw out some key investing themes, topics, ideas, and we get your thoughts on whether they're overrated or underrated, just to get a sense of how you're thinking as an investor. Is it a one-word answer or can I no, elaborate? No, please do elaborate. The, the one-word answers and the silence afterwards sometimes get a little bit awkward. So we want, to, <laughs> we want to hear the why as well. Unless you're Vanguard who refused to answer with anything other than neutral um, <laughs> on, on all of them. <laughs> it's very on-brand for them though. <laughs> I won't do that, I promise. <laughs> so we'll get stuck in. To start at home, overrated or underrated, the ASX 200 index? I'd say underrated as an investment space for private investors. A lot of Aussies are all very excited about property and that kind of thing, but we actually have a pretty high level of ownership, share ownership in this country. I think if not the highest, one of the highest in the world. But a lot of people don't take advantage of it. So for that reason, I'll say underrated. Moving overseas then, overrated or underrated, the S&P 500? I'm going to go a bit contentious here and say overrated. It's obviously the world's largest market. It's got some of the best companies on it in the entire world. I've got exposure to it through a number of ETFs. But I think there's a lot of talk you hear from a lot of pundits that sort of say you have to have overseas exposure and you should be investing direct in in overseas markets. I think for most of us, unless you've got like millions and millions and millions to invest with, you're going to gain plenty of exposure with an ETF and you can focus all the hard work on the local stuff where you have a bit of a home advantage. I like that, Andrew. I think that's you might you may be one of the first experts we've had on the show that have said the ASX 200 is underrated and the S&P 500 is overrated. So I'm liking this uh, contrarian streak that you've started right at the start. <laughs> with all the, with all those with all those caveats underneath. I mean, I, I do think <laughs> yeah. it's a great market, the S&P 500, but I don't I don't know if people who are out there aspiring to be uh, private investors that they they need to spend a huge amount of time on it when there's so much great local opportunity. So moving to another part of the investing universe, overrated or underrated investing in emerging markets? Again, from the context of your your average Australian private investor, uh, I'd say overrated. Very risky in emerging markets. I mean, equity markets in general are reasonably risky, emerging markets even more so. So unless you have some special insight or advantage there, I'd say there's, there's no need to be a direct investor there. Moving back home then, Overrated or underrated the Australian residential property market? Overrated underscore capital letters. <laughs> you know, I, I've been oh, for so long now. I've I've been been pretty negative on on Australian property. I always put people off offside by saying that, but I would start by saying that property is a fantastic asset. But any asset, you, you can still do bad in a quality asset if you overpay. And I think the valuation metrics on average, and again, like the share market, there are individual exceptions to the, to the wider rule, 
But I'd say on average, Australian property is well overvalued and has been for a while and has a lot of systemic risks for the country. <laughs> so I'd say over. I, I, the, the other thing I just add to that as well, you've got horrible liquidity, huge transaction costs, and almost no capacity to diversify unless, again, you're extremely wealthy. So it's well overrated. That gave me flashbacks to your time on the Motley Fool podcast. I, I seem to remember a few high horse rants uh, about Australian property then as well. Can I say for the record, uh, <laughs> Ali, that uh, I think since then, Aussie properties on, on an inflation adjusted basis has actually gone down a little bit. So I'll take that as a victory. <laughs> well, you know, part of the reason that we started this podcast was because all of our mates seem to have a one track mind to invest in property. So I feel like we're on a similar mission to get people away from property and into equity markets. I just think, again, I wouldn't want to be really careful here. I love it as an asset class. I really do. But there's this narrative here. And, and I think you need some context here. I know you guys don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about property, but you started this, so <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you can't blame me. But you know, we've had this scenario now. We're really for the better part of fifteen, almost twenty years here. We've had we've had this secular run in the property market that is is literally unprecedented in Australia and in global markets over such a time frame. So there's this idea that it never goes down. It's a it's a surefire proposition, and you hear some wonderful success stories. But in that period, Australia hasn't had a recession. In that period, we've had some other structural factors, uh, the rise of the two-income family being a very underrated, underappreciated one, but also massively increased lending conditions, lower interest rates, and they all sort of rationally explain what's happened. But I think the problem here is that people just push and extrapolate that narrative forward to infinity. And so there's a lot of nuance to unpack with all of that. But I think for those reasons, I think Australians have a, have a perverse view of what is quote-unquote normal. Mm. So then last one for this game, overrated or underrated Bitcoin? Overrated. <laughs> That's full stop. <laughs> uh, you're baiting me here. Look, Bitcoin, the, tech, the technology behind Bitcoin is fascinating. I think it's got some really interesting use cases. I think crypto definitely has a spot. We're so early in the history of this thing that, you know, I, I think it's very a very bold person who says, oh, it's definitely going to be nothing and a waste of time. But at the same time, I just think that even if there's a long-term bright future for for crypto in general, 99.9% .9 of them are going to be worthless. So there's, there's going to be, we have to sort of understand this through the potential lens of survivorship bias, if and when something emerges out of all of this. And I also think too, and I really deep dive into this because I was, I was fascinated by it. Uh, anytime I speak to a, a crypto nut, no one can really give me a cogent, A, understanding of exactly how it works and B, what problem is it trying to solve? I think there's a really good value proposition for drug dealers and uh, money hoarders and things like that. But I think I, I do wonder what problem is it trying to solve? And I know that the hardcore libertarians have a very strong view on all of that. But for the majority of us who sort of believe in, I guess, potential longevity of our society, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know exactly what problem it, it's going to solve that we don't have a pretty good solution for already. I don't know if you see the hardcore guys on Twitter at the moment who are suggesting that we're now witnessing the the end of the, the US dollar and fiat currency and this will be the rise of Bitcoin. I've seen a bit of it, you know. Oh, man, again, there's, there's such a potential here to go down a rabbit warren, but I'll, I'll, buy, <laughs> yeah, well, let's, I'll buy my time. Let's move on. <laughs>
So, Andrew, before we jump into straw man and then um, some specific stock chat, we always like to get an understanding of your background and particularly the story behind your first investment. There are usually some lessons that you may have taken from that first investment that you sort of carry through to today. So if you don't mind sharing the story of your first investment, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So it was in the tech boom of the late 90s. I just gotten a job at Comsec. I didn't really know what a share was, but apparently they were things that only went up and massively so, especially if there was a dot-com or any kind of tech <laughs> inference related to it. So without actually really knowing much except for that, I bought this, this company called Liberty One. I did incredibly well on it, like on paper. I can't remember how much it was up, but you know, something ridiculous. And then, you know, the, the tech wreck happened and it went down. So I bought some more and went down and bought some more thinking that I could average my losses away. And, you know, it ended at zero. So it was a wonderful, I like to think of it as, as an education or a tutorial expense. And I actually think there's a couple of really good lessons here. First is know what you're buying, which I think is the number one mistake that most new investors make. They can tell you what the stock price has done. They can tell you virtually nothing beyond a sort of superficial level as to what the company does. So, you know, know the company and also understand when your investment thesis is broken or if you can admit that you never had one in the first place. And when that happens, regardless of your loss, get the hell out. Probably the two biggest lessons there. I'm interested in unpacking that idea of an investment thesis further when we talk about your individual stocks, because I think it's definitely something we've spoken about on the podcast, but I guess it would be interesting to unpack it in very specific examples as we have this conversation today. But before we get there, a couple more questions about your background. So you studied microbiology at university and then ended up in finance. What was the journey there? How did that happen? Um, what went wrong? <laughs> I, realized, I realized that there was no money in science, that I was a very uh, shallow person who, <laughs> who liked money. <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think it was more a stop gap that became permanent. So I graduated, I did an honors degree. I was actually applying for a few jobs. I think Johnson & Johnson was the last application that I made. But there was a long process there and I needed cash. And so there was God's honest truth. This is how old I am. So this is this is when there was like uh, job vacancies in the newspaper, and there was literally an ad in there that said, "Do you want to be a broker? Call Vince, or maybe it was Vinny. Call Vince or call Vinny." And I had some number there, <laughs> and so I did. And it turned out to be some dodgy recruitment agency that Comsec had had hired. And Comsec back then was nothing. It was like fifty people. It was a a small subsidiary of of the Commonwealth Bank, and they were just seeing if this low-cost brokerage online idea would kind of work. And so there was a, I'd like to say it was my sheer genius and raw talent that um, saw me stay in the field. But the truth of the matter is it was just, you know, this industry was being formed. Comsec was the clear market leader. It exploded. So just by virtue of <laughs> being able to not be too terrible, I got carried along with that. And then, you know, by the time I'd sort of blinked, it was sort of I'd, I'd started a career and, and the field of microbiology had moved on and, and that had sort of you know, passed me by. And I, I actually found out that I, I really liked investing. And so the rest is history. So you've moved through roles as an equity analyst. And as we said, spent some time working at The Motley Fool. And alongside that, you have also pursued some entrepreneurial ideas. I read that you started an espresso and chocolate bar back in the day. Is that true? Yes, it's true. Yeah, in North Sydney. <laughs> How'd that go? Uh, not great. Not great. <laughs> um, 
Well, it could have been worse. We started it from scratch. We had to do the fit out. We ran it for a year and we sold it for our total funds invested. So we lost in terms of the opportunity cost and, and wages and that kind of stuff. But it wasn't a great experience. And again, I'd put it down as a, a good education expense. It, yeah. was, it was one understanding that as an industry, it was just some really poor economics as a general rule. And I think anyone who's been in that space knows that even those that have been successful there know it's, it's very hard fought. And yeah, and, and, and the other thing that was interesting as well is, is that just how massively important seemingly small influences can have and the, the role of chance and luck in all of this. I'm, not that I'm trying to b- blame luck on the poor fortune there, but it was just, it was a very, it was a very interesting experience. So I'm glad I did it, but I, I wouldn't go into that, that space again. You're now the founder and managing director of strawman.com. And for our listeners who haven't heard of it, you must go and, and check it out. It's an online investment community where really Aussie investors go on and share their investing ideas, but also, I guess, scrutinize others and I guess give feedback. There's peer review, independent research and and recommendations from some of Australia's best private investors. It's an awesome platform and and it's really now sort of starting to take form and and shape. And I guess if we can just hear it from you, Andrew, why did you start Strawman? You know, there are a number of other similar communities available to the everyday investor and what perhaps does it offer that otherwise wouldn't be able to find in, in competitor platforms? Yeah, um, I think it strikes me as really odd that in 2020 that if you're a private investor, you really, you've sort of got Twitter and you know some old school forums to go to. There's not really a great place to meet and collaborate. And the places that are there don't have any accountability or structure to it. So plenty of places online you can chat stocks, but I mean, who's the person at the other end there? I mean, who are they to say what they're saying? What's their track record? What do do other people think of their opinions? So I wanted to have a platform where really, I mean, getting rid of all the tech lingo, it's it's really just an investment club, you know, And, and like the old school investment club where you might gather with your mates around a kitchen table and talk stock and share ideas and question each other. I just wanted to do that online, but again, give people sort of the tools so that they could do it in a, in a convivial yet robust sort of way. It's been a long journey because it's just, I'm not a developer and I've had to outsource a lot of the work. So it's, it's taken a while to, to take form, but it's really excited actually. We just released a new version a couple of weeks ago, which allows people to manage virtual portfolios. And we've got some really cool new features in the works as well. So it's, it's, it's come a long way. We've got about 7,000 members on there now, which is great. We've never done any advertising for that. It's, it's all organic. And what I'm really proud of too is that of the people that we've had, we, we launched a, a public beta in late 2017. We sort of progressively expanded it from there. But, but since that point in time, we have this thing called the Strawman Index, which tracks the most popular recommendations. And that's done more than 20% per annum since then, even if you include the latest sell-off. So it's, again, for me, that accountability is really important. And there's just a nice bit of social proof in what the index has done and, and long may it continue. So should we be expecting a straw man index fund in the coming years? It's always been built with a view for that in mind. I'm, I'm very big as an investor on optionality. I mean, you just, you just don't know what's going to work and what's not, what opportunities might present. So... So that was one of the things that when we first conceived of it, we thought, well, it'd be actually cool if we could put some real money behind that. So it's built in a way that you can't 
front runner. It, it waits for the market to close before it does its rankings and weightings and all of that kind of stuff. And it's built in such a way that people can follow it in real time as well. So we do a weekly rebalance and I probably shouldn't get into all the maths and algorithms behind it, but but it, it is it is very much structured in that fashion. And yeah, the hope is is that one day we'll we'll be able to find a um, fund manager who who seed that with a bit of cash, and and you'll be able to invest directly in the strawman index. I noticed that one of the stocks that is the second highest holding in the index is Pushpay Holdings, which is one of the ones that we're going to be discussing in a minute. So looking forward to jumping into that but is strawman free for its users andrew yeah 100 percent free at this stage we need to be viable so it won't always be free but as i said the big on optionality and, and not sort of trying to be too rigid in our thinking but the long-term thinking is really what i'd like to do is actually provide a platform for contributors to monetize their ip so if you're a passionate private investor you know why share all your stuff for free on hot copper or twitter when you can actually put it up on a platform attract an audience and monetize that. So we, we're looking at a model that would allow us to do that. Plus there's some other things as well, whether it might be through advertising or the usual kind of spill, those kinds of things. But if and when those things happen, we're always going to have a freemium version where you'll have the vast majority of functionality and content available for free. Yeah, I like that. Alec and I have a bunch of secret herbs and spices that we'd like to share with our audience, but don't want to give it away for free. So let us know when that uh, <laughs> when that forum is up. For sure, I think there's a lot of people in that in that category, and rightly so. I mean, anyone who's a serious investor knows how much work goes into this stuff, and so to sort of just give it away seems a bit unreasonable. And and I think also other people recognise the value of good content as well and are more than happy to pay, especially when they know that so many newsletters out there offer such poor advice. You know, if you've got something that has legitimate track record there and it's you know probably going to only be the cost of a few cups of coffee a month, it's, it's pretty good value. So, Andrew, we've teased the idea of stock-specific chat and so I think we should get stuck into that. But before we do, I want to introduce the discussion with a more broad and general question, I guess, and that is, do you have an investing philosophy when you invest personally? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, what are you doing if you don't? I mean, what is your North Star to guide your decisions? You need a big idea or a big set of ideas the bones from which to sort of put the meat around, so to speak. So yeah, I definitely have an investment philosophy. And I think it's it's probably best stated as good businesses at good prices held for the long term. How did you develop that philosophy? Trial and error. And I think having worked in the industry for so long, I don't know what your... Uh, your language content warning is on the podcast, but there's, there's a lot <laughs> of fine. shit. There's a lot of shit out there, you know. And and look, so it was it was really interesting for me. So I I'd come from a science background where everything I mean, absolutely you could hypothesize about things, but at the end of the day, you need to sort of test them. You know, a good theory was one that was supported by the evidence. And then I came into finance. And there's a, th you guys know better than anyone. There's a thousand different sort of philosophies and approaches and stuff out there. But, but when you actually sort of look for evidence of their success, you don't find a lot of it. I mean, of course, you'll find the, the thing about the market is you'll be able to prove anything with an example because there's literally thousands and thousands of stocks and we've got decades and decades of history. So you, you can make up any BS and then point to an example where that, that would have worked. But when you approach that rigorously, you know, from a, from a statistical standpoint, and Lord knows a bunch of academics have done this over the years. You start to very quickly realize how much crap is out there. 
And it was always really perplexing to me as well that there's so many people who had cracked the magic formula and we're just happy to sell it to you for a couple hundred bucks. I mean, just, you know, if I had the formula to turn lead into gold, <laughs> I'm going to use it, right? I'm not going to, I'm not just going to like give it away in some crappy subscription. So to answer your question, the investment philosophy was really just formed through observation and trial and error. And like so many people who I'm sure you've spoken to on the podcast before, you know, you eventually you discover Buffett and Buffett himself borrowed a lot of his ideas from Graham and others and developed by Munger. And I mean, there's plenty of other really famous and successful quote unquote value investors there. I guess Buffett's just the best known, but, but that set of ideas, that core set of ideas really resonated with me. But more to the point, there's just a lot of demonstrable evidence that, that it tends to work very, very well. And so for that reason, I started going more in that direction. And, and over time, I've, I've just found that it's been validated again and again and again. So mm. we call the website Strawman because I'm a big believer in having your ideas shot down if, if they're not good. So I would like to say it's an investment philosophy, not an ideology. If someone can show me a better risk-adjusted approach, I'm all ears. But until that happens, this is, this is the, what, the approach I'm going to stick to. I like the fact that you said you want your ideas to be shot down because Bryce has promised me that he's going to shoot down one of these ideas in this interview today. So I guess as we get stuck into these, these individual stocks and we've got three to talk about today, so we might go one by one. I guess what we want to do is really understand what the company is, how you found it, because that's a big question in our equity mates community is just where do you start? And then what do you like about it? Or what's your investment thesis? And then potentially some, you know, open it up to a bit of a chat around metrics, valuation, you know, all the good stuff. So if we start with the first one, which is Integrated Research Limited ASX Code IRI, can you tell us a little bit about the company and what it does? Yeah, sure. And apologies in advance to um, straw man members and others. I, I know I tend to go on about the same sort of small set of companies. <laughs> Having said that, though, I, I've got to just say at the beginning, there's no extra points for novelty in investing. Yeah. You know? and, and there's no extra points for degree of difficulty. So I tend to, again, when you study the, the great investors, I mean, most of their returns come from a small subset of their total selections. And they just become super intimate with that stock in terms of, of understanding it, which gives them a real edge in investing. And that is a source of advantage that I think too many people ignore. So I know back in the, in the Motley Fool days when we were running a newsletter, but I mean, people just wanted something new all the time, which, which always struck me as strange. I, I would imagine that what you want is the best idea, you know, even if it's the same idea. And, and I forget who said it, but uh, it might have been Peter Lynch who said that the best stock to buy is probably one that you already own. So with that little disclaimer out of the way, and apologies for, for talking about integrated research again, I do like it. For those that aren't familiar, these guys have what they call, quote unquote, experience management solutions. So it's really software that helps you monitor and troubleshoot and optimize system critical IT infrastructure. So these guys have huge enterprise level clients. So it's something like 125 of the Fortune 500 companies use these guys, have for a long time. And this is a tech company, but it's an old school tech company. This was formed in 1988. You know, so this, this, you could have bought this in, in the first tech boom. Actually, I need to check that. I'm not sure if it was listed back then. But anyway, it's been around for a long, long time. And it just has characteristics that, that really appeal to me. The first is that it's got extremely sticky customers. So this current COVID-19 sell-off that we're seeing, I mean, I'd be really surprised if they lost too many customers there. 
because it's not the kind of software that you just say, no, we don't need this. It's, it's too system critical. That's really nice to have a dependable source of, of income. It's also the leader in its market. So it's an Aussie company, but this is a global business. 95% of their revenue comes from over, overseas. And as I said, with some of the biggest companies on the planet, they've got a long track record of really attractive metrics. You, you said we talk about metrics at the end, so I'll, I'll go into some of them more later on, but really high return on equity. The net margin, so what they make after tax, after costs, after everything on their revenue has consistently been above 20% for a long time. And if there's one thing that you can say as a, as a general truism about investing is that any company that can sustain double-digit net margins in that vicinity has got a serious competitive advantage or at least significant pricing power. And I guess the last thing I'd say without going on for too long is that they've got extraordinarily strong balance sheet, no debt, very rarely have any debt, lots and lots and lots of cash, aligned management, great track record of shareholder wealth creation. And I think it's a good value at the moment. Yeah, it's fascinating. I've been looking at some of these metrics and they're, uh, <laughs> they're pretty phenomenal. So we will get into that in a little bit. But I guess before we do, how did you find this company? That's actually a good question. I've known it for so long. I can't really think. I, I, it might have actually come up when I was working at Team Invest back in the day. Yeah, but I couldn't actually tell you. As I said before, though, I, you know, I, once I think you get a real edge in, be, in becoming very familiar with a company and following it for many, many years. It allows you to put new information in context as it's, as it's released. So integrated research is very much an example of that. And so you spoke about return on equity. You spoke about net margin, no debt, great cash balance and briefly about management. Are these the sorts of metrics that you plug into a screener if you're to try and find stocks that are similar to this? Yes and no. First thing, I, I don't actually use a screener. I think they're okay. They're a very rough and ready kind of tool. Like at some point, if you're brand new to the market and you, you look at it, as I said, 2,000 odd companies, there, so you need something to sort of to whittle it down. And I think that's where screeners can be useful. But frankly, these days, I, I don't really use it because there's a lot of false negatives and false positives that come up in these screens. But generally speaking, yeah, I, I mean, before I even consider a metric, I actually start off on the qualitative factors. You know, what the hell do these guys do? And can, can I understand that? And, and frankly, with most businesses I look at, I can't. I can say a sentence as to what they do, what the industry is. But I mean, I mean, really understand this business. Could I have an intelligent conversation with the CEO about this business? And there's no shame in not knowing. But if you don't know, then for the love of God, don't invest. So I think, I think that's a really handy starting off point. The art of investing is all about trying to, I think, independently appraise value. I mean, to do that, you need to have a pretty good understanding of the business. So the metrics that you're looking at all lead into that. What gives me some kind of visibility, understanding first, and then visibility second in terms of what the future for this business looks like? Does its history give me some confidence that there's something special here and that that momentum in business activity can continue? And now I've got a bit of a starting point to sort of thumb suck evaluation and begin the, the long and never-ending process of refinement. We touched on it a little bit there, but it would be good to get a little bit more specific in regards to this company. So after you did some research, you looked at some of the metrics, you, you liked it. How did you go about forming an investment thesis? And can you tell us what your thesis is for this company? 
Yeah, I, I pretty much gave it to you. Here's, here's the other thing that's important to mention with the term investment thesis. It's coming a bit sexier in recent times because it, it sounds really technical. But you know, a good a good <laughs> investment thesis is something that you could really write on a napkin. I think you know, one page should be able to give you an outline. If someone said to you, "Why are you buying this thing?" You need to outline the big picture. Obviously, you need to be able to go into detail on some of those points if ever quizzed on it. But, but the high-level one doesn't have to be overly complex. In fact, the more complex it is, I would argue the greater the, the risk is there. So, yeah, the, the, the investment thesis is that this is a very successful company with a, a solid pedigree, with a very strong competitive position, with very attractive financials, extremely well-managed in an industry that is growing and is likely to keep growing and in which it can, at the very least, maintain its market share, if not increase its market share over time. And the final part of the, of the thesis is that I believe it's trading at a value which is below its intrinsic value, that its market is offering you a price which is better than fair. So it's currently trading at $3.09 as at the time of recording. It dropped as low as $1.70 towards the end of last year. I'm interested to know how you buy in and out of a stock like this, Andrew. Do you actively buy and sell or are you buy five years ago and then that's it? How are you managing that? Yeah, it's an excellent question. So part of what we're trying to sort of spotlight on Strawman is what people are doing. So if if you go to my profile on Strawman, you'll see exactly what I've done there. So in my personal account, I've held it for a while, but for Strawman, I, I purchased it in November 2018 at $1.88. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's a 27% money you know, compound return through till now, which is great. Really happy with that. This stuff always makes you look smart, like in retrospect. And believe you me, there are other examples I could give you which, which do anything but. <laughs> but even in the ones that make you look smart, I mean, I didn't pick the bottom and it didn't start to prove itself for a while. So the best investments I've ever made you end up looking stupid for a long time and you really start to doubt yourself. It's that old saying, you know, the market is a weighing, short term, it's a voting machine, long term, it's a weighing machine. So it's really naive to think that you're going to buy a share and it's the day after that everyone else in the market comes to the conclusion that these things are ridiculously underpriced. It, It doesn't happen that way. So, and when do I sell out? I actually hope to never sell. I think that the real value is in the thing itself. <laughs> if that thing that you're holding is becoming more and more valuable, why would you want to win that relationship? It seems pretty crazy to me. So the, there's only two reasons I would sell. The first is that the investment thesis is broken. So I've written it down. I've articulated what I expect to happen. And again, there's some detail beyond that sort of higher level periphery. But if the company comes out tomorrow and makes an announcement, which fundamentally shows that some important assumptions are wrong, then that thesis is busted and I'm, I'm out. You know, you don't even muck around with that. You know, you can always buy back in if you realize you made a mistake. Okay. So it's not about timing the market. It's nothing like that. It's just, Hey, I'm buying this share for these reasons, you know, a month, a year, whatever later it's like, Oh, that's, that's fundamentally flawed. Get the hell out. So that's, that's the first reason to sell. The second one is that if Mr. Market just offers you a price that is simply too good to be true. So integrated research, a great business. If Mr. Market turned around tomorrow and said, I'll give you six bucks a share, I'll take it. You know, I don't want to end the relationship, but that's too good to be true. So when you get a silly price, I don't, I don't, I don't want to pretend here that I've got a valuation that's so accurate that, you know, it gets five or 10% above I'm out. But when you really tried to do it in a sensible, smart, objective way, and the markets come at it 
and and give an evaluation that's you know significantly significantly above that there's enough of a margin of safety in that to sort of say you know what i'll i'll take the bird in the hand here and, and i'll sell out but unless the market is ridiculously overpriced or the thesis is busted i'll i'll never sell in fact i think actually that's another classic mistake for new investors is that they buy something for whatever reason whether it's a good reason or a bad reason they buy something and through luck or skill or whatever it is let's say a year later it's gone up 20% for a market which tends to give you 10% per year on average that's a great return and they'll sell and then they'll sell because they've anchored on a past price you know market doesn't know or care what you paid for your share but that's that's all most people tend to care about like oh i've got a 20% profit here and through fear of losing that profit they will often sell out now if you do that even if you tend to get those kinds of returns pretty regularly you're never going to build significant wealth when you look at every successful investor out there long term the money hasn't come because they managed to lock in 10 and 20% gains on a regular basis the money came usually from a small subset of their holdings that just delivered monster returns compounded annually at high double digit rates for a long time like that's what you want and so when you look at afterpay today or zero today or any you you a2 milk you name your your darling asx stock it wasn't the dude that made 30% 3 years ago that's laughing all the way to the bank it's the person who held on to it all the way so selling can often selling at a profit selling at a good profit can often be your biggest regrets in investing and they're certainly my biggest regrets you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to bluenile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's bluenile.com. bluenile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the stamps.com mobile app You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com. Sign up with code program for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. So, Andrew, I'm looking at some of these metrics and I think now's the time to get stuck in. And I guess I want to pose this question in a roundabout way. If I'm looking at a company that has delivered double-digit annual revenue growth for the last 10 years, double-digit earnings per share growth annually for the last 10 years, has no debt, delivers return on equity consistently in the high 20s or 30s, and yet is trading at a pretty reasonable price to earnings valuation i guess my interest is peaked one because it looks like a good company but two why isn't it trading at a premium you tell me yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i'm asking the question so. <laughs> 
So do you have any thoughts on why, why that is the case? I can guess, but they, they're just that. I mean, long may it continue, by the way. I mean, I would be the happiest person alive if this thing dropped to a dollar tomorrow on the proviso that there was nothing fundamental behind that. I mean, isn't that wonderful? I've now got an opportunity to buy the same asset, the exact same asset, at a significant discount as to what it was yesterday. I mean, that, that is a good thing to happen. Again, very big caveat there. If nothing has changed fundamentally with the business, if, if you know they announce that the you know CFOs run off to Jamaica with all the money, that's that's probably a good reason for the shares to fall that much. But look, I, I don't know. The, the market does crazy stuff all the time, and I don't want to get too far into the theory here. But you're either a, a proponent of what they call the efficient market hypothesis, or you're not. And if you are, and there's some pretty good arguments out there, which suggest that the market tends to be always pretty accurate in pricing things. In other words, the price is always fair relative to the business prospects. Then to do better than that is, except with a bit of luck, virtually impossible. So I think I think you have to fund it. If you're going to be a direct investor, if you're going to be the kind of person that buys and sells individual shares, you have to have, have that belief that there's a lot of inefficiency in the market. Not massive inefficiency all the time, but enough for you to be able to gain an edge and, and to exploit. And just to go back to an earlier point, because I have followed this company for years, I can tell you it does this all of the time where they, they're actually at such a low level a couple of years ago because they had some problems in the European operations. There's some poor execution and things that were objectively bad. I want to look at it through rose-colored glasses. But again, anyone who's been in business knows that even the best businesses stumble, suffer from bad luck, just make poor executive decisions from time to time. So you know, if you look for a perfection, you're never going to get it. But what you need to do is, is say, when something goes wrong, is this a structural issue? I mean, is the, is the hole in the boat so substantial that this thing is sinking? It might take a while, but it's going down. Or is this something that, that will be fixed and the ship will continue to sail on its merry way? So one of the questions I, I love to pose to other people when we're talking stocks is, you know, if someone's pitching me a stock, they love it, obviously. The question I want to ask is, well, what's the bear case? I'm a big believer in the idea if you, if you can't articulate the bear case and understand it as well as the bears, you shouldn't be buying it. And with integrated, I've, I've not come across anything good other than some ideas that maybe it's in the price, so to speak. So a lot of people are looking at the pricing, you know, it's, it's, it's fair. It's a bigger company. As you say, it's been around for a while. It's more mature. It's growth prospects what they once were. Trees don't grow to the sky. You know, They're already the largest player in their field. Where is all this extra growth coming from? So it might be a slight valuation sort of bare thesis there, but I don't know. That's a long answer, but to my mind, the bulls have a better argument. Seems a bit too good to be true. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to oversell <laughs> this, Bryson. This isn't a company that you're going to buy and is going to double your money tomorrow. Maybe it will, but yeah. if it, not because of, of anything I've outlined. But I'm buying it on the expectation that over the next five, 10 years, it can compound with dividends. And by the way, they pay dividends with dividends at least this can, this can deliver a total shareholder return that's at least 10 or 12% over that period. And frankly, if that's quote unquote mm. all it does, Happy days. I mean, in this low interest rate environment, that, that, is a, that is a wonderful return. And it is a wonderful return when you look at it as you should on a risk adjusted basis. I mean, if I get 10% over the next 10 years per annum on Bitcoin versus 10% per year on average and in integrated research, both the same return, but one was far less of a gamble. <laughs> So let's move to the second stock that is on your watch list slash in your portfolio, and that is Push Pay Holdings ASX ticker PPH. Again, what is Push Pay? 
what do they do and how did you come across it? Pushpay is a SaaS business that does payment. It's a payment platform for the faith sector. So they tithing and donations for churches, which is a real interesting niche. Payment platforms are very well established. There's some very big ones. They're actually, you know, the successful ones are absolutely the best businesses you will ever get because you're just clipping a ticket on, on the way through here. Think Visa, think MasterCard, if you, if you really want the best examples ever of that. But even in more recent times, there's, there's other ones that are really attractive. But none of them have gone into this niche. And I think the mistake people make with Pushpay is that, you know, it's replacing this sort of old collection plate that you handed around at the end of the service. The customers that these guys are targeting are the mega churches in the US. This is where, you know, it's like football stadium kind of things with the rock band up the front and, you know, spotlights and all of this kind of stuff. So they are huge organizations. It's like a $2 billion a year industry. And yet these huge organizations and Perhaps it's a bit easy to be cynical on this. An organization slash profit-making enterprises are still (laughs) running with checks and cash. And churches have special requirements that that necessitates the use of a specific platform. So it's a Kiwi company. This is the overnight success story that's sort of, you know, 10 years in the making. But they are the largest player in in their space. And they've only now, I think, got about 10% of the market they're targeting 50% of the medium and large church segment in the US. So again, we're talking about metrics. SaaS businesses have all their own unique metrics. So lifetime value, retention rate, churn, all of these kinds of things. And just to save everyone a hell of a lot of time here, just go to the ASX and and look at Pushpay's latest result. In fact, go back for the last three years and look at their presentation decks. And every metric that you want to look at is going bottom left to top right, you know, whether it's retention, whether it's annual recurring revenue, you, know, you name it, it, it's moving in the right direction. And interestingly, they've now gone to cash flow positive. So it was a, like a lot of tech companies, it was, it was losing cash as they were developing the product and, and capturing market share. But they've passed this inflection point, which are always really interesting, especially for these kinds of companies, which tend to have a great deal of operating leverage in the sense that they can service I'm going to make this number up because I don't know exactly what it is, but they, they could service 30% more clients without a single cent in expenses. So it means that as you pass break even, the growth at the top line is magnified at the bottom line. So you've already got a business here that's growing its, its revenue at 20%. It has been for a while. And as they've now tipped into positive on the bottom line, that's going to grow at an even stronger rate particularly if you've got confidence that, that they've got some, some cost discipline, which I, I very firmly think that they do. So, Andrew, it's only been listed for a few years. And from your point of view, are you in this because it's a growth play or more of a value play? I've got to be honest with you. I don't, I don't like those terms. I'm with Munger. Okay. I think any sensible investment is a value investment. Even if you're going for an unprofitable, hyper-growth kind of company, I mean, if, you, if you're not paying good value, you know what I mean? You still, it's still a bad investment. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, 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 mm-hmm. I'm kind of playing with semantics there, but not really. So, you're right. It's a growth business. You're not buying it for its dividend. It doesn't have one. Um, but at the same time, I think it's a growth business that represents good value relative to the future cash flows of the company. You're right. It hasn't been listed for a long time. But again, you can, you can dig into this, look at their perspectives. They've been around for longer than that. And it was always struck me as a bit strange that in a market, particularly last year, which was just going nuts for anything that had anything to do with SaaS, this was just trading on ratios that were actually bargain basement by comparison. 
and yet the metrics were super attractive. I, I think a lot of people misunderstand the sector that it's in. But yeah, growth business trading at an attractive price. So Andrew, I'm interested in asking a question around circle of competence. Now, you're obviously a tech entrepreneur, as we've spoken about with your straw man <laughs> site, but Pushpay is a SaaS business, as we've spoken about. How do you think about the underlying technology and your grasp of you know, whether they actually have the best technology, whether they're going to be disrupted by a you know, larger incumbent moving into the space or another disruptor in the field. How do you think about assessing that side of it and whether you have the, I guess, the competence or the knowledge to be able to do that? That is an outstanding question. Well, what's interesting with a lot of these so-called technology companies is that the technology that they're using actually isn't that advanced. I, mean, I don't know what code it's written in. They're not reimagining IT engineering and development here. They, they're using very well, you know, they're on AWS. You know, they're probably using Ruby on Rails or, you know, one of the well-known coding languages. There is nothing unique about the building blocks and the tools that have been employed here. What's unique about it is how it's been put together. And what gives me confidence in it is that, one, there's a very strong, I guess, social proof, business proof in the sense that every tech company is going to conquer the world. But when you, when you can actually look at a track record over several years where the biggest players in the space are using it, and as some of their biggest advocates, you know, well, the technology has got to be pretty attractive. When you've got near 100% customer retention over many, many years, again, money talks and BS walks. If this was crappy, you know, one, they might be able to trick a few people to, into selling it, but they'd, they'd be getting out of it as soon as possible. But with 100% retention, you know something good is there. And with, with the rate of growth, you know that that's being able to be, uh, that value props effectively being able to be communicated. But I think one of the most attractive things about it is, and this is true for a lot of tech businesses like to claim it's true, um, it's legitimately true for, for some businesses, is that they have what's called a network effect. In other words, the product itself becomes more valuable the more people are on it. Mentioning Visa and MasterCard before, that is, that is the best example that you can possibly give. Are there better technologies and payment methods out there? Yes, but everywhere accepts Visa and MasterCard. It's so well established. It's so well entrenched. You know, it's it's very very hard for people to come in. So what Pushpay is doing is actually building a pretty potent network effect amongst its users. And when you get more and more churches on there and more and more worshippers on there, it becomes more and more powerful. So I think they're in a good position now. But if they manage to go from 10% to 20% market share, it becomes even stronger. So you and I could invest a bunch of money and come up with a better app. I'm sure we could if we if we had the, the know-how and skill and patience and capital funding. But that's not the challenge. The, the challenge is to disrupt the grasp that these guys have on the market. So I don't know. Hopefully that answers your question. It's partly about the technology, but it's more more about that network effect. So we will move to the final one, Andrew, which seems to be another tech company, and that is Catapult Group International Limited. Correct me if no, I'm no, wrong, by the way. ASX ticker is CAT, C-A-T. So again, if you could just give us a brief intro into what this company does and, and again, what are some of the key metrics that stand out to you for Catapult? Yeah, I, I thought I'd throw a bit of a contentious one in here. When you said at the start, there's one you wanted to challenge me on, I thought it's going to be... It's gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to be honest, I just threw him under the bus there, but I'm, I'm excited <laughs> to see what he does with it. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> you would be legitimate in, in having some criticisms and, and this, this company has attracted a lot of criticism in the past. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll come back to that. So, so what do Catapult do? These guys, 
do sports analytics. They've got little devices. In fact, if ever you see any of the major teams training, they usually got this little man bra thing on with a, a little square in the back yeah, of it. Yeah. That's a catapult device. Yeah. So it's like a tiny little thing that measures velocity, impact, momentum, you know, a million other little things. And it, it feeds it back to the coach. Lovely little dashboard display, which gives you a whole bunch of analytics. So, you know, it's probably not necessarily something that your local under 12 team is going to have. But when you're at the elite sports level, you know, when you're putting people in wind tunnels and spending that kind of money on on getting the most out of your assets, and when I say assets, I mean players, of course. And when you're spending, you know, $10 million for a player, you really want to get the best out of them. So at this elite level, this is, this is big business. But these guys, I think it's actually fair to say, invented the category. They came out of the Australian Institute of Sport yonks ago, and it's sort of been commercialized and further developed since then. But it's, again, very high top-line growth for a long time. They are the, the world leaders in their market. They've still got a huge amount of market share to capture. They've got a good part of their revenue generated offshore again. So I'll just touch on that point quickly. So integrated research, push pay, and also catapult, most of their money comes from the US. I said before, like, you know, why bother investing in the S&P 500? It's no accident that a lot of the stocks that I like and hold actually have, have a lot of their business over there. So you kind of get that diversification anyway. But what's particularly interesting at this point in time is with the Aussie dollar falling, all of these guys get a massive free kick in that regard too, which is a little bit of extra sweetener in these uh, challenging times. But after many years and a lot of stumbles, they had $13 million in free cash flow at the last half. They reported at the start of the year. They expect to be free cash flow positive on an ongoing basis for the year FY21 and going forward. So again, they're passing this inflection point of being this loss-making, and believe you me, they have really been a loss-making operation, bleeding cash for a long, long, long time, tipping into this into this cash flow positive scenario. The reason why so many people love to hate it, this thing went from 50 cents up to $4. I actually bought my first parcel at 55 cents. Mm. I should just slip that in there because, because, wow. <laughs> because why wouldn't I? But again, before you think I'm too smart, I, I, I didn't sell at $4 and you know I rode it all the way back <laughs> down again. And it got, it, I, I did sell, I lightened the lighting around 250 at one stage. But at, at one point last year, it got back to, geez, I want to say, 70 cents or something like that and more recently it's gone from two dollars all the way back in so it's had this thing where it's actually a position that since i bought my first parcel i've ridden it sort of from you know sub a dollar to two dollars plus on two separate occasions i'm going for a third at, at present <laughs> and that's <laughs> unlucky like, well i mean the compound <laughs> the compound annual return on a money adjusted money weighted basis which is which is the right way to do it has been super attractive since day one it's just that if i in hindsight i would have i would have timed things a lot better but again i say that more to make the point that timing is really not an important thing. You've got a good business that eventually does well. You know, It comes out in the wash in the end, even if you have these massive swings. But just to give the concern here is, so they, they were founder-led for a while and these guys were just, in a, in a word, um, profligate. They, they, they had very poor cost discipline. They made a bunch of acquisitions, not necessarily bad acquisitions in, in total, but, but certainly a, a lot of money paid for them. And so even though sales were growing really well, costs were growing even faster. So it was just this perpetual loss-making machine. 
a lot of shareholder advocacy went on, particularly among some of some really good fund managers I know. The board got the message. The CEO resigned. Read into that what you will. Maybe something beyond behind the scenes there. Um, and they've got a new guy, Will Lopez, who's, who's been brought in, who's got a very, very clear cost focus. So my proposition here is, is that A, the industry is super exciting. B, it's growing really, really, really fast. C, it's the market leader in this space. D, despite all its troubles, throughout all of these, these times, the top line sales have been growing at an incredibly strong rate, and I think that's got a long way to run out. And finally, finally, you've got someone in control who at early days but seems is a lot more cost-focused, which means that we'll be able to unleash some of this latent operating leverage and, and finally get some real value created for shareholders. So things took a massive tumble in, in the wake of the coronavirus scare because a whole bunch of leagues have shut down. But I would posit that, again, this is not something it, – it's like, it's like push pay and religion. Religion's not dead, right? Religion's not going to go anywhere. I'd say the same with sport. And I think although they're going to have a tough couple of years with new sales, they'll still have – I think 75% of their revenues are based on long-term subscription payments. They've got $30 million in liquidity available to them. So they did a raise last year, so they've actually timed that well. So they'll survive. They'll come out the other side. I noticed that one of their competitors is in a really tough position at the moment due to balance sheet worries. So I know that there's a lot of hairs on it in the past, but I think it, it's sort of around this dollar mark they're at at the moment. I think it's good value. And if you were savvy enough, you actually could have got it at, at around 50 cents a month ago. So Andrew, I've got to ask, you paint a rosy picture there and you know you talk about it's got long-term contracts with a recurring revenue. To add some color to that, it's got 3,000 clients spread across 150 sporting federations worldwide. You know, names like Real Madrid, AC Milan, the New York Jets in the NFL, the French national soccer team, the Dallas Mavs in the NBA, like NRL, AFL, like it's, it's big yeah. names and they've got contracts. Why can't they turn a profit with the customer base that they've got? They could have. So if, if I had a time machine, um, I would go back five years. They had this really great tech that came out of the Australian Institute of Sport and they wanted to own the, the tech stack, quote unquote. And they wanted to bulk it. So they bought XOS, which is a video analytics business. They've got athlete management systems that they're developing. So they, they, they have very, very bold plans. And maybe when we're talking in five, 10 years, we'll go, actually... That wasn't silly. They've actually they've actually spun that into a huge amount of shareholder value. But but to answer your question, they they were too ambitious and they were too profligate. So they just couldn't manage it well in terms of costs. So it's it's one of these things where at the top line, great great story. At the bottom line, there was nothing left over for shareholders. Worse than that, to stay afloat, they had to do all these capital raising. They did one capital raising after another at ever lower prices to keep the damn thing afloat. And and it was frankly, it was just bad management. So then, if we if we turn to the question of investment thesis, given that these guys have had great top line growth but have struggled with their costs, and you mentioned before that the new CEO is very cost focused. Is your investment thesis quite specific here that they'll be able to continue their strength against their competitors, continue growing their top line, but the thesis really comes down to they're going to be able to control their costs better than they have before and become a long-term profitable business? That is a key part of it. And for a lot of time, that was really up in the air. So although I'd sort of maintained a holding in this over the years, it was a much smaller holding in the past. On the podcast that I did with Claude Walker and Matt Joss, we don't do it anymore, but 
we had some really good debates over this one. And I, I even even when it got down to 70 cent last year before the new CEO was in place, you just get to a point occasionally where you think, oh man, I know this has got troubles, but you know it's in the price and then some. So there's a huge margin of safety there. So obviously that couldn't be said when it was, again, pre-COVID-19 when it was up around $2. But that's because I thought what had changed there is that they had gotten the message and to your exact point, they were going to to approach things in a much more disciplined manner. So since then, in speaking to management and just looking at the materials that they've got, they're talking about, I mean, well, they were, they're 13 million in free cash flow in the half just generated. I mean, that for a, for a Catapult shareholder, that was like, wow, that that's a first. But they've had this, this target that they've spoken of a lot. They reiterated, I think, just a month ago that they're still on track for that uh, FY21 free cash flow positive and then on an ongoing basis as well. So if they don't do that, if at the next set of results, it looks as though that's much less likely, I would regard my thesis as busted. And if I follow my own advice, I'd sell out very promptly. That's a good point. And that was something that I wanted to follow up on because in some ways, it's very easy to create a thesis. It's probably a lot harder to track it and have the discipline to actually sell it. So when you're thinking about the idea of your thesis being broken, do you give management a timeline to, you know, sort of prove you right and to to manage their costs? Or how do you think about that process of tracking the thesis and making the decision to, you know, cut them loose? Yeah, definitely. So I'm big in so many ways, I'm a big believer in you want to be generally right and not specifically wrong. So I think a lot of investors, a lot of professional analysts in the industry do this all the time. Well, I'll have like a earnings per share forecast to 12 decimal places for next year. I mean, for God's sake, <laughs> you know, like, A, how can you be that accurate? The CEO can't come up with a forecast that that's accurate. That accurate. And then really, is that the reason why you're buying a share? I mean, it's more about when I'm looking at a, at a company, I'm, I'm, I'm being general in my forecast. So it's not that it's going to be 8.62% compound growth in earnings per share over the next three years. It's that I think this company can probably grow its bottom line between 7 and 10%, you know, up a single digit kind of rate, or these guys can grow their sales at about 20% per year for at least the next, you know, few years. So I think, I think you want to be general. And, and so when you talk about, you know, giving management enough rope, well, one, you know, swallow does not a summer make. So if they have a, a shocking quarter, that's not great. But, you know, I think every time in the market, if you jump at every shadow, you, you're going to do yourself a, a lot of disservice. I mean, even the best companies have, have, have shockers from time to time. But once that evidence started to mount and, you know, to put a time limit on them, I think investors would have a pretty good read on things over the coming six months, next two, two quarterlies. If, if the narrative has changed there in any material way, then it's. It, I think it's safe to say that the thesis is busted. By the way, it doesn't mean you can't reformulate it um, as long as you're being honest and objective with yourself. And I have actually done that several times with Catapult. So the reason I hold it today is very different to what it was a couple of years ago. But you've got to be honest with yourself there. The, the, the bigger point that I would make here, and this is going to seem like, sound like a shameless plug, it's not. It's very much the reason that we designed Strawman the way it was because I think that the biggest thing that an investor can do to improve their results is to keep an investment diary. That is right down your investment thesis, write down what can go wrong, write down the reasons that would cause you to sell because you're going to lie to yourself in six months time or a year's time, or you're going to misremember, or you're going to rationalize it. And think when you have it in black and white, it just keeps you honest. And so with, with straw man, it's not just a tipping contest where you get a 
you know, virtual portfolio and buy and sell and buy and sell. We actually encourage our members to like create these these company reports, you know, give us your bull case. What are your risks? You know, pop that stuff down there. One, it's it's great value for the rest of the community, but two, I mean, for God's sake, do it for yourself. When you commit to doing that in public, it holds you to account, again, for your own benefit, so much better. But even just the process of putting it into writing sharpens your thinking immensely. So you've got this idea in your head. You've got a loose collection of thoughts. You've got a bit of a sentiment as to why you feel about a business. But when you have to put that into a sentence and paragraph and page for someone else to read and understand, you'll find that as you go through that process that you'll discover the holes in your reasoning. You'll discover the things that actually I don't know enough about this, or I really should do that. So you'll start with this process of keeping this diary and writing it all down. And as you go through, you'll, you'll recognize all these holes, which will force you to do a bit more due diligence. And by the time you're finished, A, it's much clearer in your head. B, you'll have built your conviction much more seriously, which which is important because things are going to be volatile and scary. And if you don't have any conviction, you're going to sell out at the first sign of panic. And C, it gives you something to, to as a touchstone to look at three, six, 12, whatever it is, months down the track that you you can hold yourself to account. So yeah, absolutely. Write it down, write it down. And you straw men to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I said it would be shameless. <laughs> I think that's a good place to end our discussion of three stocks. If anyone thinks of a question that Bryce and I haven't asked or wants to take up uh, the challenge that Bryce didn't take up to really challenge Andrew on a stock, they can jump onto Strawman and, you know, attack his thesis on there. Honestly, do it. Obviously, do it with Strawman, but I mean, attack me. I'm either right or I'm wrong with these things. And so my goal here isn't to come on and try and, you know, encourage people to do things that are formed on a whole bunch of half-baked ideas. I mean, I legitimately like these companies. I've got real money invested in all of these companies. If I'm wrong, I'm going to find out one way or the other. So I can find out because another engaged investor has pointed out the flaws in my reasoning. That's going to bruise my ego and it's not going to be fun, but I'm not going to lose any money. Or I can wait for the market to show me and I can have my capital wiped out and that's going to be much less fun. So you know, absolutely, challenge, challenge, challenge. And there's always another side to the coin. I'd love to hear it. I love that. So Andrew, we've taken a fair bit of your time now, uh, but we do like to finish with a final three questions. So we'll jump into them. But before we do, aside from strawman.com, not.au, just strawman.com. Just.com. We've got, we've got global, global ambitions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. I like it. I like it. Nice. Um, is, there, is there anywhere else where people can follow you? Like, are you active on Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, I, I don't mind a bit of Twitter, at Sage underscore Simeon. Don't ask me why. I set up an account <laughs> years ago and that's what I decided with. So yeah, you can get me on Twitter's probably the best place. Nice one. So look, as I said, we, we like to uh, finish these interviews with a final three questions. So we'll jump into those. The first one is, do you have any must-read books? Yes, I do. And listening of the podcast, I knew you were going to ask me these questions. And I think that the answer that I would normally give is almost a bit passe because they're so often quoted, which suggests to everyone that you should definitely read them. Yeah. <laughs> right? I'm, yeah. not, I'm not saying that in a bad like you is, but for the sake of but the sake of just trying to be a little bit different. There's a great book that Joe Mega from Lakehouse Capital, so 
we worked together at the full ages ago. Fantastic investor. He put me onto this book called Gorilla Game, and it's got a technology sort of focus, but it talks about investing in that space. It's a bit hard to find, but you'll be able to order it on Amazon. And that was just such a game changer to my way of thinking. Yeah, particularly if you're after, if you're sort of trying to chase chase monsters, as they say. I think I think it's really good insights into that. Mm. There's another really great book which is more about business than investing, but if it's about business, it is about investing, as far as I'm concerned. It's called Competitive Advantage by Michael Porter. So anyone who reads or follows Buffett will know of um, Moats. Michael Porter goes into this in a big way with a really great framework. And it's not a light read, but you'll come out of it having a much better appreciation for the types of businesses that you want to own. I mean, there's a reason that Buffett talks about moats all the time, because if you've got a strong competitive position, it's just, it's almost everything, right? And so, so this book is going to give you a really good framework for that. You'll be able to spot them. You'll be able to spot when people are claiming them, that they have them and they're not there and you'll make fewer mistakes and you'll make better returns. There's one more quick one. Big fan of Fooled by Randomness too. It was one of Taleb's early book or maybe mm. his uh, first book. So Black Swan and Anti-Fragile get usually all the mentions, but I think Fooled by Randomness is a really good one. It's not about the share market specifically, but when there's so many people out there that, again, there's a lot of false evidence and false examples that you can use in the market. And I think by reading that book, you'll get be able to cut through a lot of the BS and sort of see things, for, tease apart the difference between skill and luck. And there's a lot of luck out there for some people. Nice one. I like the fact that you went a little bit more obscure. I think there's some good books there that I'm keen to read and I'm sure our listeners are as well. Second question that we like to finish up with, What's your go-to source for investing information? I actually, well, straw man, of course. But <laughs> <laughs> honestly, I think the best place you can go is the source material. I spend most of my time, well over 90%, when I'm reading stuff on businesses, just from the company's own ASX releases. Why go to someone else to, unless it's someone you trust a lot, to interpret it for you or to give you their spin on? I mean, that's valuable stuff, but go to the source material itself. You know, you might find that your interest is piqued by a, a blog post that you read or an article you read in the AFR, but, but go read it. Put it this way. If you've got even $10,000 invested in the market and you can't be bothered to read a, an annual report that comes out once a year, I mean, you, you don't deserve to be an investor. To, to put it bluntly, I mean, buy an ETF and you'll get, in fact, you'll probably get better returns than a lot of the, the experts and you, you'll do no work. But if you're going to be a direct investor, you've got to take the time to read these things. Read what's coming out of the horse's mouth. Read the source material. You, you won't do better than that. Nice one. And then last question, if you think back to your early days of investing, you know, when you were just starting out, you know, in the midst of the uh, the tech boom, those glory days where no one could do any wrong, what advice would you give your younger self? Uh, there's so much advice that I would give myself. A couple ones quickly would just be read, 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 read. There's just so much great thinking has been done already before any of us were born. It's like uh, Charlie Munger says, I mean, you don't have to figure everything out yourself from first principles. So just read, read all the time. For the sake of a 20 or $30 book, you're going to get incredible, incredible education value out of that. The second one would be, don't be pig-headed, you know, recognize when you've made a mistake and get out quickly. Don't rush to take profit just for the sake of it. And, and the main one, which I mentioned before, so I won't elaborate on, is, is keep an investment diary. It's the biggest thing that you can do to improve your results. Andrew, that is something that we've had a few expert investors also suggest as well. And 
to be honest, it's something that I've tried to do along the way, but are very inconsistent at it. So yeah. I might use straw man as the place to do it. <laughs> well, don't, I think a lot of people make the, make the mistake of thinking that it's this it's this huge ordeal. I mean, really, if you just go to the you know open up a Google Doc right and just type something in there, just you think that's it. You don't. It doesn't have to be a, yeah. a, a like an academic thesis, even though it sounds very technical. Just just write anything down. It'll it'll help. Well, thank you for your time today, Andrew. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and we've absolutely got a lot out of digging a bit deeper and understanding what's important to you, I guess, when it comes to to looking at stocks. And I know that our audience would have absolutely got a lot of value out of that. So very much appreciate your time and we wish you all the best with strawman.com and hopefully a number of our audience can swing across and spend some time on there as well, because as we said, it's it's a great resource and couldn't thank you enough for coming on. So thank you. I appreciate it, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.